Hello, welcome back to another episode of Be Seen, the civil and environmental engineering podcast at USC Viterbi School of Engineering. I'm Emily, I'm one of your co-hosts, and Christine, your other co-host, is not here today, but she'll be back. So if you're a first-time listener, we are student advisors in the department, and our hope for this podcast is that it gives you some insight on the research and the community here in the department. Today, we're going to focus on energy. As I'm sure you know, the topic of energy, climate change, and sustainability have been really prominent in recent years, and rightfully so. As a species, we use a lot of the Earth's resources, and I think it's important that we make sure that we're not depleting them. And if we are, we should be looking into solutions to be either more efficient or find alternative energy sources. Today, we're going to hear from Dr. Sanders of the Sanders Sustainability Systems Group and one of her PhD students, Steph Mays. Their group focuses on large-scale resource management systems to address the technical, political, and societal issues that challenge the sustainability of communities. Well, I don't want to spoil it, and I'm sure that they can speak and explain way more eloquently than I can, so here are our guests. So I guess I'll start out by introducing myself. My name is Kelly Sanders, and I've been here at USC within the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department since January of 2014. And my work in my research group at USC really focuses on the intersection of energy, water, and climate. So we really look at how the energy systems interact with the water systems, for example. And just to give you some sense of what that could mean is we live here in Southern California and 90% of all of our water supply is being pumped in hundreds of miles away. So that has a big energy toll. On the other side of that kind of energy water dynamic is the fact that our energy systems actually need a lot of water to be reliable. So our big power plants need water for cooling and that has environmental impacts on our water system. Our oil and gas operations require a lot of water for production and processing. So I'm really looking at the tension between those energy water resources. And as we've moved farther in the group, we're really looking at how this whole climate dynamic might impact those resources. So we're going to get into some of the details with STEPS project, but we're really looking at how our electricity use, for example, might change as a function of climate change. We're looking at some of the stress that climate change puts on our energy and water systems. We're also looking at some strategies that we might employ to respond to climate change from a decarbonization perspective. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. So I'll pass it over to Step. Yes, I am Step. I just finished my third year of the PhD program here in environmental engineering. And my project is focused more specifically on the electric grid and something known as demand-side management. So to kind of go really briefly, because we'll get into more detail, from the perspective of decarbonizing, there's kind of different strategies. You can look at supply side of electricity, which is the generation, and then there's the demand side, which is when people actually consume electricity. So I'm kind of focused on what flexibility we have on the end user side, on people who actually consume electricity. Yeah, so if I can just dig into that Mm -hmm. um, from the standpoint of your project. So historically, it seems like we've been focused a lot more on the supply side when it comes to strategies to reduce emissions, to reduce Mm -hmm. impacts on the environment. So it's really kind of drawing the box around the coal-fired power plant and thinking about, well, how could this power plant be run a little bit more efficiently? 
How could the pollution controls actually like take some of the pollution out of that flu stream before it gets into the environment? What your project focuses on is a different way to think about the electricity system and how we might get some of those energy savings. So I'm wondering, can you explain that a little bit more to us? Like, I'm thinking right now from a consumer's perspective, I don't really care about how I use electricity use. Like, I I turn on the lights when I want to. I use my computer when I want to. Yeah, I might think about, like, trying to minimize my consumption because I've been told that that's probably Mm -hmm. good for the environment. But how is how you're thinking about the electricity system as a consumer, how is that different? Like, in the day of a life of an electricity customer, how might your strategy look a little bit different? Sure. Yeah, so I think in terms of, you know, the motivation, one thing to keep in mind when we're talking about the electric grid is that supply and demand have to be matched at all times. So we need to make sure that our supply from, you know, power plants is matching our demand for electricity. And like you said, kind of drawing the box around the generation, we can say that, you know, it used to basically be you consume electricity whenever you want, you don't even need to think about it, and we'll just adjust the generating resources to match whatever you're doing. But we have some new generating resources that have become more ubiquitous, and especially have become a lot more common in California, like solar power and wind power. And I think what's different about those resources is that they aren't as controllable or flexible as some of the traditional resources. So kind of solar and wind power are available when they're available. There's not a lot we can do about that. So instead, what we're doing is we're looking for flexibility on the demand side. And in order to keep supply and demand matched, if we can't control as much of our supply, what we want to do is control our demand a little bit more. Specifically, we want our demand to better match when those renewable resources are available. And there's a bunch of benefits to that, but from the perspective of decarbonizing, you know, if we can really maximize our utilization of those renewable resources, we're going to get emissions benefits just by timing that correctly, timing our demand when those resources are available. So like you said, for an end user, it used to just be use it when you want or like maybe try to use less, but now it's also when you're using it. So if you have things that you can do that are a little bit flexible, like charging electric vehicles, charging your laptop, doing your laundry, maybe when you run your AC, those are all ways that we can get flexibility out of the demand side. Yeah, so I guess to summarize, it's this basic principle that when I know there's a lot of solar energy on the grid, Mm -hmm. and here in CAISO, so the California Independent System Operator, which is kind of the grid that manages all of our electricity use for simplification, If I'm in a grid that has a lot of renewable energy, I want to think about, okay, well, this is a time where the majority in KISO Hmm. is being supplied by renewable energy. Can I use that renewable energy now when the sun is out to try to reduce my electricity when the sun goes down? Because what happens here after we lose our solar? So, you know, in the middle of the day, it's really clean, I understand. Right. So middle of the day... um The supply from solar power is huge, and also the demand isn't particularly high, typically. And as we go into the afternoon to the evening, that solar power starts to go down really significantly. I mean, you know, eventually it's going to hit zero, right? And the demand starts to go up. So now we have to make up this difference as we're losing this clean generation and we're increasing our demand. We have this huge difference to make up, and that all is going to come from those traditional resources, most of which are fossil fuel plants. So in the evening, we can end up at this really, really emissions-intense period where when you consume electricity, there's a lot of resulting CO2 emissions and, you know, other things like like air pollution as well. 
So just avoiding that pattern that we have is can make a really big difference. So using electricity when it's cheap and clean and mm-hmm. then trying to reduce it at night when those natural gas generators come on. Mm-hmm. Now, what if the skeptic in me asked the question, well, I thought that storage was going to fix all of this. Like, couldn't we just build a ton of batteries and then we don't even need to think about how we use electricity? Like, why is what you're proposing better than that? Or at least why should that be in one of our set of options? Yeah, I think batteries can provide a lot of flexibility. And I think it's very likely that one day they will. Currently, though, we don't have a lot of storage and it's expensive. And also, you know, it's a somewhat time consuming process to get to that point where we have all those batteries and we have all that storage. So demand side management, demand response, that can be done right now. And it's theoretically be done at a, in a pretty low effort way because we're not asking people to necessarily even use less electricity. They can still do all these things they want to do. We're just asking them to adjust when they use electricity a little bit. And I think a lot of that with smart thermostats or similar could be automated. So I think there's kind of like a low-hanging fruit here where we play with our demand-side flexibility, and that can help maybe reduce the amount of storage that we eventually need or just provide benefits right now while we're building up that flexibility through storage. Okay, excellent. (laughs) So we've got this idea of demand-side management down. So this idea that the consumer itself can actually be an asset in helping us clean up the electricity grid. So let's dive a little bit deeper into this issue of what you alluded to in the beginning of the conversation called Mm pre-cooling. So what's the idea of pre-cooling as a demand-side management strategy? Yes, so pre-cooling is a strategy that focuses on the air conditioning operation of buildings. And the idea is that, you know, buildings, we have insulated them, we've built them so that they can maintain their temperature to a certain degree. And that's, you know, beneficial whether you're trying to heat the building or cool the building. The idea is that it helps kind of trap the air inside the building and keep it at the temperature that you want to be at. So for pre-cooling, what we're thinking is that if we cool our building pretty aggressively during one period of time, it'll stay that temperature or slowly move from that temperature over, you know, the coming hours, let's say. So if we were trying to reduce our electricity consumption, specifically from our air conditioner, at one period of time, what we could do is run it really aggressively prior to that period of time. And then during that period of time, we could turn it off and let that thermal inertia take effect. And the benefit of that is, you know, if we can shift the AC consumption by a few hours, that could be the difference between consuming at, you know, 5 or 6 p.m. when there's a lot of fossil fuel on the grid versus 2 or 3 p.m. where there's more solar power and a cleaner, cheaper grid. Yeah, and it seems like there might also be some benefits in other parts of grid management because you're kind of interested in the greenhouse gas reductions mm-hmm. part of this and even the air pollution parts of this by reducing that fossil fuels and maximizing the renewable energy consumption that's used for cooling. But we've all heard about these public safety alerts that mm-hmm. the utilities are sending out during really, really hot times of the year. And those are really a situation in which the utilities are actually concerned that they're not going to have enough power generation during the early evening when those natural gas generators have to ramp really quickly to meet our demand. 
So you're kind of getting, you're hitting two birds with one stone. You're getting those greenhouse gas emission benefits and you're actually reducing that peak demand. Mm-hmm. And what about costs? Like, is this going to be more costly to the consumer? Because, you no. know, when I hear <laughs> the narrative about renewables, it seems like, you know, more and more and more and more money. But what are you finding? No, that's like the, the third bird, right, that we're hitting is that a lot of utilities now are offering time of use rates. So basically a time of use rate is a rate structure where electricity costs different amounts depending on when you use it. And sometimes that can be a pretty aggressive difference. So some utilities will make electricity cost, say, twice as much between 5 and 8 p.m. or three times as much compared to the rest of the day. And that it has that goal of reducing it during that period where it's stressful. And sometimes these are programs you opt into. Sometimes they're, they're the default. But with pre-cooling, you know, you could pre-cool directly prior to that really expensive time. So if the time of use rate is at its highest from like 5 to 8 p.m., you could run your AC right up to 5 p.m. and then turn it off and use it as little as possible during that expensive period. And you're actually going to save quite a bit of money by doing that. And we've kind of found that with the right approach, you can balance those benefits where you reduce CO2 emissions, you save yourself money. There's benefits for the grid, uh, as you mentioned, through reducing that peak electricity demand. And you can kind of do that without sacrificing much from the perspective of your comfort in your home. And you can still keep your house at a reasonable temperature. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. So we're talking a lot in like kind of these high-level concepts, but I'm curious you know, what does this actually look like from a research perspective? Like, are you in people's homes taking measurements or are you doing some sort of grid scale modeling or home level? Like, can you describe a little bit what the research process is, like what your models look like? Sure. So um, pre-cooling does get studied in a variety of different ways. Specifically, I am looking at pre-cooling using a software called Energy Plus. So that is a building energy modeling program. And basically, you input a building design and a weather file, and it's going to simulate how that building acts in response to that weather. And one thing that we're playing with is the cooling schedule. So we can try out a bunch of different air conditioning set points. So, for example, we could leave the air conditioner at, you know, 77 degrees Fahrenheit all day. And we can run that simulation and... From Energy Plus, we'll find out exactly how much electricity that air conditioner is consuming every hour. But then we can also try it with different schedules, like a pre-cooling schedule. And so we can see how that electricity changes depending on what our pre-cooling schedule is and compare that to, say, running it at that flat baseline the entire day. And then once we have that hourly electricity consumption, we have this analysis where we're looking at, okay, How much do we reduce our consumption between 5 and 8 p.m.? We're looking at how much does electricity cost each hour, and therefore how much does our total cost change? And we're also looking at how dirty the grid is every hour. And we're using the emissions per unit of electricity to figure out what the change in emissions is for each cooling schedule. So what's really nice about using this software, using Energy Plus, is that it's very easy to try out a ton of different scenarios under the same conditions, which is very difficult to do in the real world. But obviously, it's important to to have both going on and to be confirming results. And it sounds like to date, you've looked at one home model. And I'm wondering, you know, what are your plans for this project in the future? Yeah, so currently we are looking at a single family home. It's considered like a prototype building. So it's kind of your average home out there. And we are simulating it in Los Angeles. 
But one thing we're really interested in doing in the future is expanding and looking at a variety of different tomes because they're built in different years. There's different home styles. There's different you know, levels of insulation. So we'd like to try a variety of different buildings. And we'd also like to try it in a variety of different locations, maybe across California, so that we can really confirm that those three benefits that we talked about with the cost, CO2 emissions, and then the grid stability we want to make sure that that's something that's maintained regardless of where you're living or what your home design is. It was so interesting hearing Dr. Sanders and Steph talk about the project. I think there's been such a large push for everyone to get solar panels and to find and use alternative energy. And from their findings, it sounds like that's working. We are starting to use solar energy here in California, but there's no way to store it. And so their research is looking at ways to use the energy while it's there to help address the needs during demand at peak times. Because when the sun goes down, the sun goes down. We can't get solar energy during the night. And so this idea of pre-cooling is really neat. We can use the energy while we have it to prevent the need to use fossil fuels or other carbon dioxide emitting resources later in the day. And it sounds like there's a cost benefit to that as well. So not only are we helping the planet, but we're also saving money. And who doesn't want to save money? Also just curious if you anticipate, I know I'm asking you to project because you don't have any of this information, but older homes tend to have issues with insulation. Do you expect there to be a point where like it's not worth it to pre-cool because just the amount of cool air you're trying to trap in will dissipate by the time you want it to be still in the home? Absolutely. I think that kind of a minimum ability to store energy is required for pre-cooling to be effective. But one thing that's interesting is Some of our preliminary results show that there can be similar effects for medium insulation levels to high insulation levels because for a really well-insulated home, the consumption is so low in the first place that there's only so much that can be gained by pre-cooling. So there's kind of, for the more poorly insulated homes, they're going to be consuming more energy in total, but there still is a benefit from pre-cooling. And there's kind of this difference between maybe like what percentage improvement there is versus the net improvement. But I think that our initial results show that there can be improvement for a pretty wide variety of insulation levels. Okay, so like if this works out and people implement this, if everybody implements the idea of pre-cooling, does that then just transfer where that peak use of energy is like earlier in the day? That is a, a good question. I would say that the amount of change that we're talking about versus the ramping that's occurring on the grid. So if we look at like how much lower 3 p.m. is than 6 p.m., 3 p.m. is a way lower level of generation from you know, your fossil fuel plants. So we would be shaving off a little bit of the peak that happens at 6 p.m. and adding it to 3 p.m., but 3 p.m. would still be noticeably lower than 6 p.m. So I'd actually say instead there is room for more strategies that shift from 6 p.m. to 3 p.m. or you know similar hours. I think that you could probably move like 10% of the grid's load without creating a new peak, which is not something that pre-cooling alone is going to be able to do. So I think I just want to stop here and think for a minute or digest what they're saying. It sounds like we have so much solar energy that Even if everybody shifted to this idea of pre-cooling, that there doesn't sound like there's an issue with hitting capacity of energy. And 
I think that's just really crazy for me to conceptualize the idea that we've managed to harness so much energy from the sun that if we shifted to cooling or overcooling our spaces while the sun is out, it's actually helping us eliminate or minimize the use of fossil fuels and decreasing our carbon dioxide emissions. When we think about greenhouse gas emissions reductions, it's easy to just say, build more solar, build more solar, build more solar. We live in a sunny state, we have lots of land, and we're actually hitting a point in California's grid where we actually have to curtail solar at mm -hmm. some parts of the year. So we have many, many hours across the year when you might have the confluence of a lot of wind and a lot of hydropower and a lot of solar all at the same time. And so we actually have hours in which we don't have enough demand to basically take that solar. And so we actually have to just throw it away. It doesn't get used. And that's just a wasted resource because that electricity is being generated. It just can't be used. Sometimes we can send it to other states to be used, but sometimes we just waste it. So what STEP's proposing here, in some cases, is simply using free energy that you wouldn't be able to use otherwise, whereas that peak in the evening is never free. That's always going to come with a big cost because of our natural gas generation. The other thing that I think Stapp said that should be underscored in some of the other projects that are going on in the group is looking at this is pre-cooling obviously isn't the only strategy here. There is a huge opportunity to basically bring up that daytime generation or consumption and then lower the evening peak. And so one of the other ways we're looking at this is through the water sector. So Water is a resource that can be stored. It can be stored at high elevations as potential energy. Um, we can treat it and store it. We don't have to treat it and then use it immediately. So it becomes a huge opportunity because you can actually pump the water or treat the water when we have a lot of variable renewable energy available. And then we can just kind of let the water sit and then be distributed with gravity when the water is needed by the consumer. So whether it's, you know, HVAC use or the water sector, these are kind of big flexible loads that might provide this opportunity to get the grid a little bit cleaner and to utilize some of that really, really, really cheap solar energy that we have in the middle of the day. So being a student researcher, a PhD student researcher, and a professor requires more than just doing that research. There are other aspects to their lives and their responsibilities, and I thought while I had Dr. Sanders and Step here, it would be great to hear about what that looks like for them. And so Step kicks it off by talking about a recent conference experience. Yeah, so that was the American Geophysical Union. and. It was, first of all, a really great experience because I got to travel with a whole lab group, which about, you know, eight to nine people, and we all stayed together and went to different talks together and got food together. So just from the perspective of building, you know, rapport with your lab mates and friendships, that was really great. And then for the conference itself, it's a large conference with a lot of people presenting on a variety of topics. So I think one thing that's good is you can you, there will be people in your field and you can attend their talks and they're going to be studying similar things to you, but you also get a chance to kind of branch out a little bit and maybe just learn about something you're interested in or 
find something new that you can apply to your research. Obviously, those events are also great for making connections and networking. And I've you know, had follow-ups via email and conversations with people that I met at those events. So that's like definitely a, a highlight of the year or something I look forward to as a PhD student because it's kind of this mix of you know, work and socializing and, and bonding with your lab mates. And when you're not at the conference, we were in New Orleans, which is an awesome city with you know, all kinds of opportunities to like, hear live music and get good food. So it was great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it this year. So then, you know, when you're not traveling around to uh, <laughs> exotic places, what does your life look like as a PhD student? Yeah, so I think what's interesting about PhD student life is that you have a good number of responsibilities and you need to take your work seriously. But I think you also, at least in our lab, you have quite a bit of flexibility. So it's more about being productive and using your time well and less about having every aspect controlled or analyzed. So I think that there's definitely a lot of room to spend time with your friends, to do hobbies. We think we're, you know, very lucky to have a pretty social, pretty friendly department. And we do like department happy hours or, you know, we've all gone bowling together. And there's also a lot of events put on by the department itself that have, you know, free food and free, you know, coffee to come and kind of just chat with your fellow students. So, yeah, I think that's kind of like the mix is it's a really good fit for someone who's self-determined or good at kind of making their own schedule because you have that flexibility and you have a lot of opportunities to do research, to socialize, to find maybe clubs at the school that you want to participate in. So as long as you're interested in getting out there and seeing what you like, there's a lot of fun things to do. Yeah, the free food part, even for oh, me. Yeah. me every time. It's, it's awesome. We yeah. have more free food here and more events than any institution <laughs> I've ever been at before. I'm just wondering, because there's probably a lot of people listening that are kind of on the fence about doing a PhD. And yeah. I'm wondering, you know, what informed your decision to become a PhD researcher? And have there been any surprises? Like when you were sitting there applying for programs versus you're here now, are there any like sure. discontinuities between those two things? So in terms of informed my decision, I think... And this is my own you know, personal opinion, but I would say the two most important things when you're thinking about doing a PhD is how you feel about research and then how you foresee your relationship with your advisor going. So a PhD is a research degree. That's the most important thing is the research that you do, and it kind of sets you up really well for a career in research. So if you have research experience and you know that's something you enjoy, I think PhD can be a really good fit for you. But I don't think PhD should be seen as, you know, like, the final degree or like the most complicated degree you can get that's it's a research degree so if you're interested in a field where research isn't the focus or you want to do something in a field that's not research you're probably better off getting something like a master's and then focusing on getting instead the real world industry experience right away instead of spending that time in your phd program so that would be the first thing i would say is like it's all about research and then the second thing would be relationship with your advisor that's going to determine your experience to a very large degree so that's when you want to be thinking about like, okay, do I want to have a really hands-on experience where my advisor and I are meeting multiple times a week and they're really involved in my research? Would I rather have an advisor who, you know, I only meet with maybe every other week and gives me a lot more freedom and making sure that you're kind of on the same page there and that you have a good rapport with your advisor? Yeah, so I meet with um, 
my students, and right now we're somewhere on the order to seven to eight students, depending on how you how you look at co-advising situations. But I meet with everybody about once a week for 45 minutes to an hour. And then we also have a group meeting where we have a student present their research. So each week, a different student is responsible for giving the update on their research. And that meeting is somewhere between an hour to an hour and a half, depending on how long we babble (laughs) and carry on. They're not very formal. And so the group meeting is kind of an opportunity for everybody to hear about the progress of students. And that's also a collaborative opportunity where different people give different ideas because everybody's on a different project, but they're all kind of at the nexus of energy and climate or energy and water and climate. So I think some of our best ideas are really generated during those group meetings. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I interview students and when I hire students for the group, you know, different faculty look for different things. For me, what I look for is students that are really passionate about making a difference. I think for me, it's anyone can learn to code, believe it or not. Um, I would love students to come to my group that already know how to code. But to me, that's something that you can learn along the way, I think, more of a priority is the ambition and the drive and just the desire to do something good in the world. I Mm -hmm. think good students are going to be good students and maybe they had an experimental background as an undergraduate, you know, but so long as they want to learn, that's good to me. And I think because of that, we have a pretty good group rapport. Like I think everyone gets along with each other. We all come from really, really diverse backgrounds. And I think that that makes us better so I don't know I, I for me at least it's it's been a fun group yeah I agree with everything you just said definitely some of my like best friends here in LA are my lab mates and you know I, I see them a lot like beyond what's expected from research and from school and yeah I think it was also clearly communicated when you know I was thinking about coming here like Kelly said you know we're going to be meeting once a week and I think Kelly was the first person to say to me like your experience as a PhD student is heavily influenced by your advisor. So, you know, you want to make sure that's a good fit. So I think that all of that was pretty clearly communicated beforehand. Yeah. I think another big opportunity for our group is the fact that we do deal with the sustainability issues. You know, we're dealing with the energy system, the water system, the climate system. And for me, at least, being here in Southern California is really exciting Mm -hmm. because there's just this confluence of disasters, quite honestly. I mean, every summer we're dealing with unprecedented heat. Right now we're going through one of the worst droughts we've had in over 1,200 years. You know, we're having very, very severe water restrictions being implemented. From an energy standpoint, California has been the most aggressive in the nation in terms of integrating renewables into the grid, but that's also come with a lot of challenges. You know, we've had situations in which we've had energy shortfalls um, during peak demand, and that isn't all a consequence of renewable energy integration, but it's a consequence of not taking a holistic enough approach to energy planning So whether you're interested in the water system or the energy system or the climate system, each one of them is producing unprecedented challenges. And I think the kind of cool thing about our group is we're taking a more holistic vision of that. Mm -hmm. We look at how does this energy system impact this water system? How does the climate impact this energy system? 
And I just mentioned a lot of challenges that California has, but the other really cool thing about California is they're doing things about it. So we have, you know, we live in a city that has a 100% renewable energy goal for the power sector by 2035. We have a goal to recycle all of our wastewater by the 2030s. And right now we recycle about 2% of our our wastewater. So that's going to be a drought-proof water supply. But we have to figure out how that looks. Like right now, we don't know how to do a 100% wastewater recycling goal. Like we don't have the infrastructure, the treatment infrastructure, the distribution infrastructure. So the city has to figure that out. And so there's a lot of collaborative opportunities between the research community here within Los Angeles and then, you know, the public utility, for example, On the energy side, our group has already been quite a big partner to the city in terms of thinking about what a 100% power system might look like. You know, what do buildings look like in that world? What does the water sector look like in that world? Where do these new power generation assets go? What kind of demand response opportunities are there? And that kind of leads into steps work. So we have a lot of challenges here in Southern California and California more generally, but the institutions that have to operate within that environment are also really, really interested in hearing about science-driven solutions. And I think that's a really cool opportunity for me. That's a really cool opportunity for the students because they're actually seeing their research getting picked up by policy organizations and like put into the real world. So it also adds an element of weight. You know, did we get the answer correct or correct within some sort of reasonable bounds? But it's not research that's just going into the peer-reviewed literature and dying. So I don't know if that was a part of your decision matrix when you were thinking about grad schools, but... Yeah, absolutely. You want to be like in an area in a community that is supporting your research so you don't feel like you're fighting upstream or just feel like you said like there's no application. So I think that... California and specifically, you know, here in LA, like you said, with the aggressive goals that they've set as a city, that's a great place to be doing any research related to sustainability. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think with a PhD, it's really important to think about the trade-offs on depth versus breadth. Mm-hmm. So I think that our students, I try to train them to think very broad and to think about, you know, we all we have all of these different systems, all of these different dots, if you will. And so my passion is trying to figure out how you connect those dots, because I think there's benefits there in terms of not just looking at the box around the coal plant, but how does that coal plant affect the water resource, the air resource, marginalized communities that might live around those power plants. And I think that's a slightly different skill set than drawing your box around the pollution control device and understanding, you know, everything there is to know about the scrubber, for example, on that coal plant. And I think both are really, really important. One isn't more important than the other. It's just the level of expertise that you want in a very small area versus being able to think a little bit broader. And those obviously lend themselves possibly to different employment opportunities coming out. Whether you, you know, want to build a device so my students don't do experiments, they are using big data sets to basically model different systems within the operating real world. Whereas in a lot of PhD groups, you might be doing experiments, working at kind of the bench scale to develop new technologies. So it's just a little bit different of an experience. 
So before I wrapped up my conversation with Dr. Sanders and Steph, I wanted to ask them about how their research has impacted their lives. Oftentimes, research doesn't have a direct application to our lifestyle or requires more development, but that isn't the case with their work. Steph's findings, for example, informs him of a better way to use energy that can be applied now. Perhaps they can be an inspiration to us. I think that I have started like... (laughs) maybe not systematically, but almost like subconsciously employing like a little bit of my own like demand response behavior. Like in my brain now, when it hits 4 or 5 p.m., I'm like, oh man, the grid's so dirty right now. And so probably just like started trying to use less electricity during that time period. And definitely you could say that about air conditioning. Now I've seen the first pre-cooling results. And I think just being in this environment and in this lab has just encouraged me to be more sustainable in general. And there's a lot of low effort ways to start implementing that, you know, eating a little bit less in terms of like animal products, making sure that, you know, you're always recycling, not wasting energy. So I'd say that's probably the main way is through just practicing some of those simple sustainability things. Yeah, I think one of the, I guess, blessings and curses of working in this world is in the back of your head, you have some sort of data set always. Like, <laughs> so should I be, you know, what are my trade-offs between taking a bath or a shower, or right. bringing my own bag or doing this or carrying my own water bottle? So I feel like my brain is always kind of turned on to, should I do this or this or this? What's the penalty of doing that? So I, I think that I try to live like a pretty low environmental footprint life. Mm-hmm. I walk a lot. You know, I try to reduce my water use. Some of those things are kind of determined for me since I live here at the university. There's only so much that I can do in terms of the space that I live in, but I can reduce my electricity use like for cooling and heating and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But I'm now actually transitioning to another place and moving off campus. So I'm thinking about those sort of things. New set of challenges, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. like, do I want to live in this type of environment or this type of environment? So, yeah, it's something that's always on the mind. To close out the episode, I just want to thank Dr. Sanders and Steph for taking the time to meet with me and having this conversation about what they're working on. The work is going to have an amazing impact on our community and the planet. I think there's a lot that we can take away from what they've shared today, and I challenge listeners to make a change. Try out pre-cooling in your homes with me. Thank you all for listening, and tune in next time to hear from another research group from the Sonia Stani Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering.